0: And welcome to episode 88 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank... Sandra Steele
1: Melissa M. Dittmanson
0: Anna Lucas
1: Gavin Robertson
0: Francesca Carendi
1: Colin Bonner
0: Jessica Griffin Erin Long Elizabeth Melendez
1: Ava Liam and Fion Cosgrove
0: Jenny Pierce Butler
1: Alex! <laughs> Sorry, it's got an exclamation mark after it. So,
0: <laughs> Kelly Spitznagel,
1: Aaron Nelson,
0: Colleen Stewart,
1: Ramey Connolly,
0: Joyce Brandon,
1: Cat Dragon, Meg, Hannah Langley,
0: Christy Ray,
1: Danielle O'Reardon.
0: Thank you all so much, and also thanks to Danielle because she sent me a uh, tie-dye T-shirt. Very nice. That was homemade, and I absolutely am living in it at the moment. We also have some keyworker shout-outs this week.
1: Yes, we do. We've got Ashes McDowell, who is a nurse at a mother and baby unit in a hospital. So thank you very much for everything you're doing. And also Madsy Mahulligans' little sister in Sydney, who is pregnant and cycles to work every day as a nurse, which that is, is s- phenomenal.
0: Insane. Like not only are you continuing to work during COVID, but you're continuing to work during COVID as a pregnant woman who is then cycling to work every day. Fair play. Oh, I just wouldn't be arsed.
1: Fair play. But yeah, we really appreciate you and everybody else as well that is a key worker that has been keeping us ticking over while we're in lockdown. Thank you so much.
0: And we have a promo for you this week as well. This week's promo comes from our good friend Matt. And Matt and his lovely partner Freya have started a podcast called Full Movie Podcast. And it is bite-sized 15-minute chunks that talk about and dissect your favourite films. So they've done Moulin Rouge, which is actually my favourite film in the world.
1: <laughs> which is why you said it.
0: They have, they have done Rocky. They have done... Rocky IV
1: to be precise.
0: They've done The Breakfast Club. So they take your classics and have a chat about them. It's a really nice little podcast and it's great.
1: It's a good little length.
0: Good little length. 15 minutes is a good time, I think.
1: And they know their stuff as well, which makes it good for film buffs.
0: Unlike us who don't really know anything about films. So we're going to play the promo now and make sure that you subscribe.
1: Hello, I'm Matt. And I'm
0: Freya. We are podcasters now. Apparently so. Yes. What are we podcasting about? Movies. Movies. As if there's a podcast
1: about movies. There's never a thing about movies, is there?
0: Never. I mean, you know, there's plenty of uh, movie reviews, that sort of thing. But have you ever thought to yourself, man, I wish there was a podcast where two people explain very little about the plot of a film, but just kind of talk about their favourite bits? <laughs> well, have we got the podcast for you? What's it called? Full Movie Podcast. It's a, it's a reference. It's a play on words. What's it a play on words of? I don't know. You made it up full metal jacket oh i haven't seen that you haven't seen it oh, no.
1: stick with me girl we'll watch it great yeah so that's us we do podcasting now at full movie podcast
0: full movie podcast <laughs> sunday 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 <laughs> <laughs> all right have a good one guys toodle pip tune in So that was Full Movie Podcast with Matt and Freya. If you enjoyed that promo, go and have a listen, like and subscribe. And our film review this week. Our film review is The Taking of Deborah Logan. The Taking of Deborah Logan was released in 2014. It has 6 out of 10 on IMDb and 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Go for it. Mia records the daily lives of Deborah and her daughter Sarah as part of her thesis. As the days progress, strange things happen around Deborah, and it becomes apparent that something has taken control of her. What were your thoughts on this film?
1: It had its moments as a scary film. I found it incredibly difficult to watch, but yeah. not f- because it's scary, just for the way that they approached and used Alzheimer's as a storyline.
0: I'm very fortunate that I haven't had somebody in my life who has suffered from Alzheimer's. But I feel like, I don't know, I feel like it's probably horror enough without trying to add horror tropes into it.
1: Yeah, I think it just makes it difficult. I think if you know someone or you've experienced that degeneration within a loved one, I think it makes it difficult to watch. understand where they're coming from because I think if you think about what we talk about a lot we often talk about hauntings particularly historical ones potentially just being un- undiagnosed mental illness that they we, we didn't understand so i kind of see where they're getting at because it was it was something different wasn't it? it was a different approach we often see that sort of mental health angle taken sometimes done tastefully sometimes not where that's the horror trope so if you think of something like split for example okay so we've seen that so it's just a different take on that just found it uncomfortable because a lot of what they went through would have been experienced by real Alzheimer's carers and Alzheimer's pa- patients.
0: Without having to throw in a shitty possession story on top of it.
1: Which was okay, <laughs> as it goes, as a story. But yeah, it wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad movie. I just found it uncomfortable to watch. And I, 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 I appreciate that part of that is knowing someone that went through that. So I, I get, like, that's my feelings towards it. So it might not be the same for everybody. And I I can see why you would like this because it's got some good jump scares in it. And there are some moments where it's really freaky. I found it uncomfortable to watch. Uh,
0: Like I said, I don't know anybody, luckily, who has had Alzheimer's. And I I was really, I felt really uncomfortable watching it as well. And it was so uncomfortable that halfway through we had a conversation about whether or not we were going to finish watching it and actually do the review. Because I, I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. This feels weirdly exploitative. And also, the the kind of pedantic part of me, I don't, you know, I don't get wound up by loopholes the same way that you do.
1: No, I get very wound up by loopholes. <laughs>
0: but if you're gonna do a PhD, at least make sure it's fucking ethically sound. There's no way that PhD would have gotten through the ethics board. Absolutely no way. So the, th- the premise is that this girl, Mia, is studying the uh, long-term impacts and physical like genuine physical impacts that alzheimer's has on the extended family network of the sufferer which you know is very noble research to be undertaking but you can't start your research by lying to the participants and saying yes my grandfather has alzheimer's and then her little fucking pal is like i thought your granddad was on holidays and she's like shut up okay i just need to get connected to them immediate fail especially when you're documenting everything immediate fail and in in my world aside from the fact that it kind of plays on alzheimer's the the guy the the random people that she apparently hired to help her film this phd are dickheads like one of the guys walks (laughs) in one of them is
1: a a particular annoyance
0: when the guys walks into like this old this old woman's house and her daughter She's, the, the mother is suffering from Alzheimer's. They're in a very vulnerable and traumatic time. He just starts touching all her shit. Like picking things up, looking at them, fiddling with stuff. Even though she's explicitly like, don't touch my things. You know? What a dick. Just not a very nice man. Not, not a very nice character.
1: I think if you take out the subplot of Alzheimer's, it's an interesting possession story, I guess. I think if, we'd, if we watched it and it had just been an old lady... ...got possessed by the person that they got possessed by... ...without trying to give anything away... ...you'd probably find it an okay film... ...it's quite jump scary... ...and actually you know... ...the Alzheimer's thing might not be an issue for everybody... ...and that's fine.
0: I mean the woman who plays Deborah Logan is outstanding.
1: Yeah she's really good. She
0: is not only brilliant when she's lucid... ...and she's a brilliant actress... But she's also brilliant when she is in those like possession states. Oh my word, she is scary.
1: There's a lovely moment, <laughs> lovely moment, that's the wrong word. There's a very freaky moment where one of the annoying guy is like staring out of a closed window in a dark room and he thinks he's on his own. And then he turns to look and Deborah Logan standing next to him. And she says in a very deep voice, you're letting out all my warm air. And the window's magically open. And it's there's those little unsettling nerving bits where you're just like, mm, don't like that. Kinda of scary.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were There's also this is the film that produced that timeless GIF that has done the rounds of the woman consuming the child. And I mean, which I've never seen. Yeah, I don't know how you've never seen
1: it. Must be a Facebook thing.
0: It probably is a Facebook thing. To be fair, but yeah, I just I don't know. I I feel this film made me feel really uncomfortable. Like it, it's it's definitely pushing the genre. Like it is trying to do something else with the genre. But I just don't know if they if they did it well. So what, what are you going to give this film out of five? Uh, two and a half. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for two and a half as and well.
1: And I, I do think some of you will enjoy it as well. Like I said, I do think, I, I'm, not, I'm fully aware that this is coming from a personal experience. And so that's why I find it uncomfortable. So some of you may well enjoy it. It's not, it's not horrendous by any means in terms of a horror film.
0: I'm going to go for two and a half as well. So ta- taking of Deborah Logan, two and a half stars. But comes with a warning. Be, be prepared for what you're getting into. And not all of the synopsis, as you can see, explicitly say that this is a story about Alzheimer's. So, just keep that in mind before you watch it. So, our story this week. Okay. We are going to be talking about...
1: The possession of Deborah Logan.
0: Not the possession of Deborah (laughs) Logan, but the real-life possession of Elizabeth Knapp. Have you ever heard of Elizabeth Knapp?
1: Uh, No, I don't think I have.
0: Well, I'm about to tell you all about her.
1: I'm sorry. I'm not looking forward to it.
0: Winter in Massachusetts is cold. And the small town of Groton was no exception. The colonists of the Massachusetts Bay quickly learned about the realities of a harsh winter when an icy wind whipped through their lives. The wind would roar down the chimneys and freeze the sap that seeped through the logs as they burned. The absolute cold was enough to make anyone want to hibernate for the winter, but in 1671 the plummeting temperatures were not the only thing to make the blood of the Groton residents turn cold. Puritan life was far from easy. They rose at dawn and rested only at dusk, attendance at church was mandatory, and suffering of any kind was seen as the work of God. Idleness was not acceptable as it allowed for the perpetrator to become the plaything of the devil. The world was full of things to be feared, both human and inhuman. Sixteen-year-old Elizabeth Knapp sat shivering by the fire. The wind was whistling through the rafters and howled an ominous howl outside. Elizabeth was being quietly watched by her mother, Her daughter's behaviour had begun to concern her over the last two weeks and she watched as the light of the flames flickered across Elizabeth's drawn face but left one side shrouded in darkness. There was a fear growing in the home. It had not been spoken about but it was there festering away in the darkest corners and being perpetuated by the growing blackness of winter. For the last two weeks Elizabeth had been carrying herself in a strange manner. It was as though she had strings attached to her arms and legs like a puppet, and she would suddenly jerk in her movements, but remain completely lucid. That Sunday at church, Elizabeth had collapsed into a fit of uncontrollable laughter, drawing the attention of everyone at the service. The parishioner's eyes slid from Elizabeth to her parents as her barely stifled giggles filled the frozen church. During Sunday dinner, she had suddenly and inexplicably shrieked like an animal, piercing the silence of the dinner table, and then returned to eating. When challenged by her shocked father, she had turned to him with cold, dead eyes and told him that it wasn't her that made the noise. Her voice was different, hollow, more assured, and somehow deeper than normal. While Elizabeth's mother recounted the strange events, she watched her teenage daughter pull her shawl closer to her and shook her head as if to shake away the doubt and fear. Elizabeth was a good girl, and she always had been. She was calm and polite, and her earnestness had earned her a job as the servant girl for the town's reverend, Samuel Willard. She was, by all accounts, very good at her job and was diligent and thoughtful. Elizabeth's mother's thought process was interrupted by a sudden scream from the fireside. Elizabeth was screaming and crying, clutching her leg in pain and begging for help. Her mother and father ran to her aid, but Elizabeth began to choke and gasp for air. Her eyes bulged as she croaked out that she was being strangled. Her hands and fingers grappled with unseen hands around her neck, and her face began to grow red as she struggled to breathe. Her eyes rolled back and suddenly it stopped. She stared ahead and Elizabeth lying rigid on the floor in front of the fire began to laugh. What started as a soft, slow giggle mounted slowly into hysterical, shrieking laughter. Her mother and father carried her to bed. The next day was the 31st of October 1671 and James Knapp, Elizabeth's father, braced himself against the icy wind as he trudged through the small town. The previous night had been fraught with tension. Elizabeth's mother had sat by her bedside all night as Elizabeth slept. Her breathing was shallow and sometimes seemed to stop altogether, which, in some respects was a sense of relief. It implied that Elizabeth was ill and not possessed. They hadn't had a single case of demonic possession since they moved the colony. And with their family history, James didn't know if he would survive Elizabeth being the first. You see, Elizabeth wasn't the only nap child. Many years earlier, when Elizabeth was three, Elizabeth's mother gave birth to a son, whom they named James. Unfortunately, James Jr. had died in early infancy, and the death took a toll on Elizabeth's mother. Her behaviour became more and more bizarre, and she was eventually imprisoned for being a general nuisance in society. When she was released, they had moved to Groton for a fresh start, and now this... James took a deep breath and went into the town hall meeting because regardless of his worries James still had a duty as the patriarch of the family. When he returned home Elizabeth was in the corner talking animatedly with some neighbouring children. He whispered to his wife about the state of their daughter and she confirmed that Elizabeth's behaviour was continuing to worry her and she looked different somehow older and more haggard they agreed that it must be the lack of sleep and whatever illness was gripping her James sent Elizabeth to the cellar to collect some vegetables for dinner and she willingly obliged a scream erupted from the cellar and James ran to his daughter she was standing blankly on the stairs and turned to her father father there are men in the cellar James bolted back up the stairs and grabbed a stick to protect his family. He burst into the cellar to find nothing. Elizabeth was close behind him and he turned to see her standing, staring into a dark corner of the cellar. She was talking and giggling. She said to the corner, What here, old man? That night again, elizabeth sat warming herself by the fire she was sullen now and stared unblinking at the flickering flames her parents were sound asleep in bed but rest was evading elizabeth her parents were abruptly awoken by what was becoming an all too familiar animalistic shriek and they rushed to the fireplace to see elizabeth seemingly being dragged by unseen hands towards the flames they panicked and rushed to stop their only child from being engulfed in fire. Elizabeth flailed her arms and destroyed any furniture within her reach. As her parents struggled to restrain her, she shrieked her animalistic shriek into their ears and clawed wildly at their faces. Eventually, she passed out from exhaustion. Elizabeth's condition steadily worsened. In her lucid state, she was polite and humble, But when she was gripped by these primal fits, it would take at least five grown men to pin her down. She possessed another worldly strength and would bark out words in a low demonic voice. Money, money, sin, money, misery. Reverend Willard was away in the home of his army general father. They were formulating a defence strategy to protect their town from the attacks of the native tribes in the area. A boy arrived on horse, urgently summoning Willard back to the town, and he dutifully obliged. Willard lived a comfortable life. He was well-educated, and the combination of his father's wealth and the incredibly generous wage he was paid yearly by the townspeople meant that he lived a presumably more lavish life than his parishioners'. When Willard arrived at the Knapp home, he set about keeping a meticulous record of the apparent possession case that was unfolding in his parish. Elizabeth was sitting upright in her bed when Willard arrived. She stared at him, blank and sombre. She told him a story. She claimed that she had been visited in the night by a wealthy neighbour who had flown down her chimney in a riding hood and bewitched her. Elizabeth recounted the tale with the same hollow, deep voice that her parents had begun to grow used to. Willard was frightened, but not of the possession, but what the possession might mean for his town. While he listened to Elizabeth's tale, he thought about the neighbour that she was accusing and shuddered. This woman was an upstanding member of society. He looked at his notes that he had written and made the unheard of decision to remove the accused name from the records. The questioning of Elizabeth continued the next day and she presented as a sad and broken teenage girl. She cried and explained that her meetings with the devil had begun some time ago. When Elizabeth would leave her day's work at the Willard house and return home to her parents, she would be flanked by a man in shadows who would offer her silk and diamonds and a life free of labour if she would pledge her soul to him. The visits were sporadic at first, but began to become more and more frequent. The devil would whisper in her ear to kill Reverend Willard while he was sleeping and take his youngest child and throw it in the fire. The devil would tell her to kill her own parents and he would grant her all of her wishes and dreams. On one fateful night, the reverend awoke to find Elizabeth standing in his doorway, shadowed by the lamplight in the hallway behind her, but with the unmistakable shape of a hook in her hand. Eventually, a doctor arrived from a nearby town and assessed Elizabeth. He concluded that her behaviour was the result of a stomach malady and recommended that Elizabeth fast for some days to relieve the sickness inside her. She willingly fasted, but to no avail. Elizabeth's fits continued and seemed to be centred around Reverend Willard. She would be quiet and serene until he came to visit, at which point she would shout obscenities and writhe around, distorting her body in an unnatural way. Willard moved between believing Elizabeth was faking it to believing that she was physically sick. But every so often she would present a display of strength so absurd that he would be swayed into believing that the cause was supernatural after all. On December the 17th, Elizabeth's strange fits suddenly stopped. So well was Elizabeth that her mother permitted her to venture downtown to take in the cold, crisp Christmas air and run some errands. The townspeople watched and whispered as Elizabeth gingerly made her way through the streets. But she certainly looked and seemed normal. That was until she bumped into Reverend Willard, They crossed paths by chance and Elizabeth reeled backwards in shock. She froze and in front of Willard's eyes her back arched and she rose to her tiptoes staying there for an inconceivably long time. Her head snapped forwards and her blank eyes stared at him. Her lips parted and her tongue emerged from her mouth in an impossibly serpentine manner. It froze in the air, twice its normal length, and in the shape of an S. Her tongue retreated instantaneously and froze to the roof of her mouth. She stood still, tiptoed, with her back arched, and her mouth frozen open, staring blankly at the reverend. "'Then the voice started. "'It came from within her, deep and hoarse, "'and her mouth, tongue or lips never moved. "'Oh, thou art the greatest rogue,' she hissed at Willard. "'Willard, joined by several townspeople, "'dropped their knees around her and began to pray desperately. "'He called out, "'Satan, thou art a liar!' and a deceiver, and God will vindicate his own truth this one day. The voice again rose from within Elizabeth, and she hissed, I am not Satan. I am nothing more than a pretty black boy, and she is my pretty girl. I have been here a great while. Elizabeth collapsed, and it was over and the townspeople continued a prayer of vigil around her. Elizabeth Knapp never had another demonic fit again. For several weeks, the townspeople conducted a trial of sorts. Not to convict Elizabeth, but to try and ascertain what had actually happened to her. Elizabeth reinforced her narrative that the devil had been visiting her for a long time and had the ability to speak through her. Willard used this strange case as a tale to reinforce the piety and strength of their community. Rather than to condemn Elizabeth, he perpetuated the idea that there was hope and redemption for them all. Elizabeth married three years later at 19 and went on to have 10 children. The case was meticulously documented in letters from Willard to the infamous Cotton Mather, who 20 years later glorified the execution of multiple men and women in the salem witch trials
1: you've got to stop doing those creepy voices i really quite them. enjoyed them
0: actually I, no, I feel like i need to practice more of them
1: the last one when she's confronting the reverend those voices were okay but when you were doing all the money sin chanting that was a weird voice yeah, was, that sorry, was the same I weird d- voice you did last time and it freaked me out
0: i just don't really know where it comes from like maybe i'm possessed oh, great. who knows so, what are your thoughts on Elizabeth Knapp?
1: Uh, it's a it's um an interesting story from that period where you would have thought that this would have resulted in her being burnt at the stake for being some kind of weird witch person, and actually they kind of dealt with it in a very civilized way in the end.
0: Is it? And this is why I think this story has gathered such fame yeah. because. Rather than them going, she's a witch, they never once accused her of being a witch. And they never once assumed that she was a witch. They assumed she was ill. They got a doctor, which was absolutely the right thing to do. And I think they maintained for a really long time that actually she was sick. And they didn't ever think that she was a witch or ever even entertain the notion of executing her.
1: Yeah, or that she was up to foul play and it was, you know, she went dancing with the devil and... Got possessed that way. Like, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any of that. It seemed to be dealt with in a very civilized way for that time, which was interesting, I thought. It yeah, may have been it. just on behalf of the Reverend trying to save face, which is fine. <laughs> I'm down with that. If it leads to less people being executed, if it's just a face saving activity.
0: But he was very open in his documentation of everything in these letters. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that even when she accused somebody else and she said, oh, you know, whoever, the woman next door, goody, whoever, was bopping down the chimney trying to get me to have sex with the devil, he was like, well, I'm not going to write her name down because I know what this leads to, yeah. so no.
1: Yeah, so it's quite a, a modern take on the story. It's quite terrifying, actually, in many ways because of all the things she's doing. Like, some of it, when you started, when you were saying about jerking, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's, like, some kind of Tourette's kind of thing, maybe.
0: There is, I'm just going to say this now, there is a modern school of thought that think that she had early-onset adult Huntington's disease. Oh, okay. Which causes those kind of jerky movements... And also schizophrenia-type symptoms. And it's a degenerative disease, but I don't... Yeah, I,
1: I mean, she's, to, to to then go on and have 10 kids would be quite... I mean, Huntington's is, is very degenerative.
0: Degenerative? Thanks. She survived into the 1700s. Yeah. So, well into the 1700s, yeah, I think. Yeah, so
1: I mean, that's quite impressive for that day and age anyway. Yeah, I think when yeah, I... let alone having a, a that kind of disease, so it's interesting. But when, when you said laughter in church, I was chuckling to myself because it made me think of this time when we were growing up we had to, our church had this thing called family prayers where like every now every like once a month or something one of the families from the church would get up and lead the church in prayers the idea was that you'd do it like once a year or you know you, you'd do it again but our family got up and when we were doing it something bit, like, not actually bit us, but something bit us in, like, the comic vein and we literally, all four kids, were just in hysterics at the front of the church and we never got asked to do it again. We were but just that's the worst. so much.
0: That is the worst. Like, and, and especially <laughs> when you're in a church situation where you're trying to, and obviously if you're doing family prayer, you're trying yeah. to demonstrate, like, how much this means to yeah. you. And it makes it a million times worse. One time. So I was at my uncle's funeral about five years ago. If anybody listening has been to Catholic mass or Catholic funerals, like they are very serious affairs, you know, and there isn't the same joy and praising of God as there is in like the church that you grew up in, for example. And this priest got up onto the altar and it was like, this was his moment on the West End stage, you know, and he was fucking (laughs) taking it. It was a big funeral. My uncle was a very well-known man. There was lots of people there. And he was like, fuck it. I'm going to do the best mass anybody's ever seen. And he was giving it serious dramatics. (laughs) I mean, at one point, he, in this really big dramatic flourish, lifted the Bible into the air and at the end of the gospel in a Catholic mass, they say, this is the gospel of the Lord, right? But he didn't just say that. He like...
1: Was it like a this is spot moment? Yes. it is is gospel. That's
0: literally what it was like. And I and I got the giggles. And we, I was sitting at the front row because the fact that's what happens with the families, they sit in the front row. I think my sister-in-law was sat on the same row as me. And I started to laugh. And you know when it's like, mm-hmm. it's it's just all consuming. Yeah. And I couldn't stop. And the more this priest was doing he was giving it his extra life and the more extra he was the more I laughed but then I and and my sister-in-law I'm fairly sure turned to me and went at least everyone else is behind us and they think that they'll think that we're just crying loads and I was like <laughs> yeah. that is my only saving grace yeah. because
1: I just couldn't yeah because when you're trying to fight that uh fight that laughter you are often hunched over aren't you and just yeah and your body is moving in the same so from the back they probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference <laughs> unless you let out a verbal <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't. I have to say. But obviously,
1: when we were doing the prayers, we were facing the entire congregation, and there's four of us, and we've each got a prayer to. Well, three of us have got a prayer to read, because must, Beth refused to do it, which is fair enough. But we, we've all got something to read, and we're literally all of us have been face of laughter. Never got asked to do it again. Um, so, that, yeah,
0: I don't read. And I know, like, in Puritan times, Mass was fucking super serious. Yeah, so laughing so, was... So, yeah,
1: absolutely. But still, she's, like, six... I mean, I guess, like, at those times, 16 is, is an adult. Earlier than that, probably, is considered to be old enough to sort of... She's still a kid, really, She's still she? a child. I and mean, like... It, it probably was something to do with her condition or to do with her possession, if that's the route that you're going down. But also, I could easily see it being just something just tickled her. Like, if you've got the... If you've got the giggles, it's really hard to stop. Like, it's really hard to stop, particularly when you know it's inappropriate and makes it harder, I think. Oh, definitely. Maybe she had just, maybe Reverend Willard was being particularly extra that service and she just couldn't hold it in anymore.
0: I think there was was also a school of thought around this story who think that Reverend Willard represented everything she couldn't have. So actually it was more so, so he lived this really lavish life, even though he was preaching piety to his parishioners he was well educated, he was well respected in the community, he had all this money, her family had been through an awful trauma and they were becoming quite prosperous at this time and actually that there was an element of jealousy but in that society jealousy was also a fucking sin, everything was a sin, you can't you can't blink for sinning at people. So actually... This was her way. Some people believe that that without like subconsciously, this was her way of getting all that jealousy and hatred out and being able to turn to this, the ultimate patriarch of your society and be like, you're greedy, you're terrible, you're an awful person.
1: Yeah, it could well have been something like that. I mean, is it just a case of an overactive imagination talking about the black man walking home with her?
0: Well, those were the stories that you would have heard. You know, the devil will come to you in the shape of a man of shadows. Or she also ranted and raved about the devil coming to her as a black dog and as a knife and all of these different entities. And I guess those were stories, they were cautionary tales, right? For Puritan kids. You know, the devil will come to you and he'll try and tempt you away from Puritan life. So she would have known all those stories yeah. anyway. So she would have known, I guess, what to say to evoke a reaction from people. I mean, her dad apparently thought she was faking it. You know, they didn't. They weren't really yeah. that into the idea of it being witchcraft.
1: But you could understand that from what the what you said in the story about the dad and the experience of obviously like insane grief that his wife went through. yeah. You could want, you could see him wanting to, and and maybe he was questioning, maybe he was wondering whether there was a mimicry to that. Oh, did you? Was the child born before
0: she was three? So she yeah, would have been so, at a really formative time. Yeah,
1: so maybe that, maybe there's an, maybe he thought there was an element of mimicry to it.
0: That's why I included that in the story because I thought it was important that at three years old she witnessed her mum have this, go through this awful period of grief. She lost a sibling, which is a really hard thing to understand when you're three. And then her mum wasn't there because she was imprisoned. Mm. And actually in that time, it wasn't natural for a dad to bring up his children because yeah. it wasn't expected of them. Yeah. So it must've been a really difficult time for her.
1: There were a couple of things that are quite creepy. Yes. Your voice. Thanks very much. I right. <laughs> um... I thought it was weird when she screamed and she said there was two men in the cellar and then they went down and there was nobody there. But then she started chatting to the darkness.
0: Oh, yeah. So in the original story, she is like, I didn't edit that. Actually, I edited stuff out of that bit of the story because I was like, God, this will go on forever. But she was talking to a little old man that she said she could see sitting on top of their bags of grain. Um and that was one of the points where her dad was like, why fuck this, she's faking this. This is this is too much. But I can imagine there's an element of saving saving your own sanity in that as well, where you're just like, Okay, let's just say that she's faking it because it's easier.
1: There was another point as well, but I forgot it. Oh yeah, when he, she appears in the doorway of the Reverend's house when she's <laughs> So there must have been a, a malintent within her as well.
0: And in that moment, so the Reverend actually wasn't asleep. Okay. So she didn't she apparently appeared in his doorway. Like with a hook in her hand, he wasn't asleep. So he was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Or whatever else they, well, whatever they say in Puritan times. Probably not that.
1: I'd, probably I'm I'd imagine, and as a reverend, times. probably not that either. <laughs>
0: but he was like, "What are you doing?" And she apparently snapped out of this trance and was like, <gasps> "Drop the hook!" Burst into tears and ran off.
1: Yeah, but that that could have been like. That could have been the devil telling her to do it, or it could have been that she was so intent on taking revenge. And actually, her talking, him talking to her, snapped her out of and made her realize how close she was to actually doing something. Yeah, and
0: that he is a person that you are going to do this to, not just this symbol of everything you can't have.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. It was a bit. There were bits of it where I was a bit like, oh, I don't like that," and I just don't like the idea of someone just giggling randomly anyway.
0: Yeah, that was that was genuinely was I didn't add that in for a dramatic effect. That was one of her symptoms, which was that she would break into fits of giggles.
1: The only thing I would say is you've got to be fairly brazen, or at least confident that your actions are not going to lead to you getting burnt at the stake. If you're going to then pull on pull off some kind of flash dance thing in the middle of town in front of everybody, that's the only thing that bugs me a little bit about the story. Not that it's not true. But with it being fabricated or her her own actions rather than like a mental illness or a possession is that in those day and ages, like there was a genuine risk that she could have been tried.
0: Oh, yeah. She could have easily and been if, executed.
1: Uh, yeah. Like officially or on the sly if she freaks out enough people in the town. So to be brazen enough to... Archer back and go on tiptoes, flash dance style, in the middle of the town, just to prove a point. I Do don't think know she who. was wearing leg warmers as well? Because yeah. that
0: is the ultimate power move. <laughs> yeah, most definitely.
1: <laughs> I'd like to say then she went into a full-blown dance routine after that, so. Well. But yeah, I've, like that's the one thing that suggests to me that it's m- more than just a fabrication. Yeah,
0: I don't think this is. I think somehow subconsciously her like hatred of her place in society came out, and I think that was a widely speculated which is very like, like it's very forward thinking that they thought that she was so upset with her Puritan life that it came out it manifested itself in this really bizarre way but apparently they couldn't remove her tongue from the roof of her mouth no matter what they did like they tried instruments they tried like putting their hands in her mouth and nobody could remove the tongue from the. her from the roof of her mouth.
1: Because did she, in the street, didn't she say, say a whole load of stuff of her mouth shut? Yes. Mm. And that
0: is documented. No, her mouth open. So yeah, her but, mouth was wide but not, open. But not moving. And he specifically said that when she was a, making... A
1: hey, ha, 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 ha.
0: Yeah, it wasn't like that.
1: Yeah, I know, but it's really hard to speak like that, is what I'm saying.
0: But he specifically said that when she said, when she made B sounds or L sounds or M sounds, they were perfect.
1: Yeah, which is hard to do. Yeah. So it's one thing doing it with your mouth shut because we know that people can do ventriloquism. Like people can talk while they're doing what you're doing now, which is taking a drink for those people that can't see, obviously. Which is everybody that can't (laughs) see. Um, But it's different with your mouth open because you can't even move. The sounds, so much of the sounds come from the tongue, don't they?
0: Yes, and her tongue at this time was fused to the roof of her mouth. Like it is very strange. And I think that's why I enjoyed this story was that Even though there was the vast majority majority of it from a modern perspective, you can say, yeah, maybe she had Huntington's disease or maybe she had encephalitis or maybe she had a mental illness. But there's elements of it that are so strange. Like it was well documented that she regularly needed like five, six, sometimes seven men to pin her down.
1: Yeah, one of my uncles who had Alzheimer's when he was in the home tried to escape from the home that he was in in one of his episodes and it took 20 policemen to get him back and restrain him
0: 20 yeah. was your uncle the hulk <laughs>
1: no, sorry th- that's
0: very insensitive was in like 20. his
1: 70s and he was swinging punches so there was a lot of people around i don't know whether it actually took 20 to hold him down but it took like five or four, like a good number of fully grown fit policemen to restrain him because this extra this supernatural strength comes from part of the degeneration is they it's just i don't know what it is whatever our mental limitations on our strength are, just taken away
0: and i guess you lose the social responsibility that you feel i can't punch another person or i can't punch a policeman and in some way you i guess you like barrier yourself you stop yourself from doing certain things but when like you said when that degeneration happens fucking all hell breaks loose yeah
1: so like it could be that actually those those fits of strength were something to do with that condition. I've got a little proposal for you though. Ooh. So let's talk about this character of Reverend Willard for a moment. Okay. So he lives this Oh
0: God, is this going to be insane? No, 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 no. Okay, you no, had no, no. that look in your face and I was like, Oh, here we go. No, no, go no. On. I think
1: it's a, I think it's I think you're gonna be surprised at how, how salient it is. It is. <laughs> so we've got this very he lives this very flamboyant life, right? Yes. I would suggest that he's actually got quite a lot to benefit from by heavily documenting it as a possession that then goes away.
0: Do you know that's a really good point?
1: <laughs> See, I told you.
0: <laughs> that is actually genuinely a really good point.
1: So I don't know how much, maybe, maybe the street incident, which is what I'm pinning my sort of argument for possession on, maybe that's fabricated by Reverend Willard.
0: So I wonder if she had Huntington's disease or mental illness... And he saw this as a perfect opportunity to prove to Cotton Mather, who was
1: yep. the big shot and an absolute bastard. It's essentially the um, Puritan equivalent of getting a shout out on Bro Hio, isn't it? Like,
0: oh my god, that's what it is. That's
1: what he was. That's what he was aiming for. He was trying to get this guy to sort of recognise. Because I'd imagine this 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 Cotton Mather guy person was writing annals of all the different events around the country yeah he wrote
0: loads of documented cases of what life was like for puritans
1: so i don't know enough about him but you say he lives this flamboyant lifestyle which is in contradiction to what apparently
0: he had lead windows in his hallway
1: whoa so he's in contrast to what this is so i'm saying he's quite narcissistic and i'd say that actually being mentioned in this book gives kudos kudos to him for then dining out later on in life so i wonder how much of this is fabricated from him
0: I think you actually might have, like, solved this story. I did not no, think no about that. No ancient scrolls. <laughs> no ancient scrolls. No mad ramblings. Because like, she did go on to live an arguably very normal life. Yeah. And she went on to live for a very long time. So I'm it's not disputing un-
1: that there was something wrong with her, potentially. Or maybe there was a minor possession case. But I'm, it's just another... It's just another thing to think about, I think.
0: And I guess Cotton Mather would be the ultimate, like, fanboy, like, material. Mm, yeah. You know? He's this high ranking official in the clergy.
1: And I, I get there's a bit of like, and this is a really bad analogy, and this is where where you might be like, right, you need to stop now. But I get there's a bit of Gilderoy Lockhart about him in that <gasps> he likes this idea of having, but actually he's probably not brave enough to deal with the real witch trials and the real rich hunt, witch hunting. And this just kind of gives him his little moment in the spotlight to dine out on.
0: Gilderoy Lockhart is like the ultimate reference point i think because okay. apparently he was like quite young and handsome
1: yeah see so that's what i'm, I'm just wondering
0: maybe that's it yeah. oh that is a really good theory
1: yes yeah, i'm not always full of mental reference
0: who are you <laughs> what have you done with dan i'm impressed that is a good theory
1: yeah. so I'm, I'm i'm leaning towards that unfortunately
0: i'm actually gonna i'm gonna lean towards that as well i'm gonna lean towards exaggerated by i think she Lockheed. probably was
1: not very well yes um, and I, I'd imagine that some some of it was probably really legit because actually you don't need to fabricate a lot of stuff if you don't under if you don't understand it in the first place, do you?
0: No, if you if you have no <laughs> point of reference for yep. why somebody's behaving like that, yep. you're. I mean, fuck me, it's like brilliant possession. Yeah, take that one off, get her executed, move on.
1: But I wonder if the, the the hinge point, which is what I picked up on, which is probably what appealed to Cotton Mather, Muff, Cotton Muffers? Mather's, 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 like Marshall Mather's. Yeah, what appealed to him? I wonder if that was a little bit gilded.
0: Maybe. It's interesting that we have this amazing account, whether or not the possession case was exaggerated or whether or not it was, you know, all based in reality. Mm. But let's imagine it's based in reality. We have this case of possession where the girl's life is spared. She is listened to enough that they grant her, like, I said trial because I couldn't think of a better word. That's
1: the best best word for it, I think, because it's not her that's on trial it's the what's happened that's on trial yeah
0: and they gave her all this space to talk and he went to the house every day to talk to her not to not to give an exorcism or anything like that he just talked to her she they spared her execution they spared the people that she accused and then somehow 20 years later society has devolved enough that the Salem witch trials happen and you know all of those people are executed Hmm for what is essentially no reason i mean there's lots of speculation about um the crop at the time being infected with a fungus that causes you know mental illness and blah 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 blah. i don't know i think it was a case of hysteria but that's not the case we're talking about and it's very
1: progressive if you think that actually these puritans left their country of origin because it wasn't religious and strict enough for them to then be this progressive is actually like even more progressive than it seems with our current lens on it, if you take that into account.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. It is a it is a genuinely great story. And just on Cotton, Mathers, in case, Cotton Mather, in case you're wondering why I called him an absolute bastard, he always said that he had nothing to do with the Salem Witch Trials when there's loads of documented evidence that he showed up specifically to watch all the executions. Mm. So that'll just show you the kind of man that he is. So would you like some new reviews? Yeah. So review number one comes from Mama Bing, 11.
1: Great name.
0: Cannot get enough. I'm a nerd for ghost stories and the like. I've listened to many different ghostly podcasts and cannot find one that I love as much as this one. Emma and Dan make it feel like you're hanging out with your best friends and their accents are unbelievably awesome. I've listened so much that my inner monologue sometimes switches to their (laughs) accents. Love, love, love this podcast. Scary enough mixed with absolute hilarity. Plus, Ghost Adventures is my favourite guilty pleasure and Dan makes me feel better about that. (laughs) J'adore. And the next one comes from Shorty Sin or Shorty SN. A friendly visit every Monday. I rarely leave reviews, but I decided to do one after my vacation. While I was away, I had no Wi-Fi and found I really missed hearing Dan and Emma's voices. You can tell that research is done on each story. Each story is well laid out, which makes it easy to follow. Their voices are calming even when talking about black-eyed children. The only thing that really scares me. Please listen, you will not regret it. It's like a friendly visit every Monday at work. Sometimes I actually forget I'm listening and feel like they're here with me. Thank you, Dan and Emma, for keeping me company during the Monday blues. And then...
1: It's an absolute pleasure.
0: Finally, Shelby Elizabeth Ferguson, I Am Obsessed. I've legitimately binged every single episode in a matter of days. I'm scared out of my mind and have resorted to sleeping with the lights on and calling my mom whenever I have to go into the bathroom at work. So needless to say, I haven't been getting sleep and my mom is quite annoyed, but it's worth (laughs) it. It's even triggered memories of experiences I've had, which has made it even creepier. Keep it up, up, guys. This is definitely my new favorite podcast. (gasps) Thank you so much for your new reviews. So we've got an announcement to make.
1: Yeah, I I mean, again, building up massively as if you're pregnant
0: big old hype beast over yeah. here if you're hearing that and you're going what in the world is he talking about building us up if you're pregnant so I posted on the on the Facebook group that we had like a, a something exciting was coming and loads of people assumed that I was pregnant I'm just gonna let you all know that I'm not
1: we have a bim baby that is enough
0: yes that is enough for anybody to have and like I said in our YouTube video everybody outside here getting mortgages we're out here buying divvick boxes to open in my car so you know those are our priorities But we, for the month of August, will be doing something called 30 Days of Terror, which is a phrase I stole from Dan. We will be doing a listener episode every day for the month of August. The reason for that is that we have a huge backlog of listener episodes or listener submissions rather. And everyone has been so gracious and lovely about it. Every so often I get a message from somebody going, hey, um, I sent you a story. I just wanted to check where you are. Nobody has complained about it, but I have this gnawing guilt at the amount of buildup and the fact that it takes us six months to read a story. So we're going to try and clear some of that backlog in 30 days of terror. I
1: mean, we're never going to catch up, but we're hoping to give ourselves a little bit more of a, a yeah. jump on it.
0: But that will it won't interfere with the normal Sunday episode. That will still come out every Sunday as normal. You'll just have lots of extra episodes during the week, and
1: with, they will be for free.
0: And that yes, they will be for free. They, what's brilliant about it is that if you're commuting, you've got kind of twenty minutes a day that you can listen to while you're commuting, which is quite a nice thing when the world is starting to go back to normal a little bit. If you would like to send us a story if you would like to find us on social media, if you would like to donate to our Patreon whatever you would like to do the link to that is on our website which is in the description for this episode and on that note
1: at RealGhostPod, oh sorry
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh that was like your brain
1: (laughs) got stuck in a loop
0: we shall see you next week, bye